This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. It's been one year since the Thrift Savings Plan underwent a major technology update. Now, those changes offered TSP participants more virtual options, better cybersecurity, and an entirely new My Account website. But the changes initially brought confusion and frustration for participants. They got mired in technical glitches, trouble navigating the new layout, and hours-long hold times when trying to get help from TSP's Customer Service Center. Many of those early issues have subsided, but the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board is still tweaking the new My Account website based on participants' feedback. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman heard more about the latest round of changes and what's still to come for TSP from the board's Director of External Affairs, Kim Weaver. When we switched to the new Record Keeper last June, it was a different homepage. And when you first got into your TSP My Account, you wouldn't see your balance right there at the top. There were a series of tiles that would give you various options, but the thing that most people want to know is how much money they've got and how well they're doing or not, depending on the market, was that you had to scroll down and it wasn't immediately visible. In the new My Account homepage, your balance is right there, front and center, top of the page. And then the the navigation is both down the side and across the top. So it's a lot easier to navigate. And from my perspective, it's a, it's a little more intuitive as to where to go for things. We're doing this because people told us, not everybody, some people really like the new, the new uh, webpage, but a number of people said that they wanted to be able to see their balance when they logged in first thing. And so this change is in response to a whole bunch of different um, comments that we've gotten. When you had been hearing those frustrations from some TSP participants, can you talk a little bit more about the timeline for how many comments you were hearing from people and then what the discussions looked like from the board to ultimately lead to that change? I can't tell you how many comments we got, but I can tell you that when we had our board meeting last week, we were hearing from our director of participant experience, and he was talking about how our contractor who who runs the record keeping system and the website, they do surveys. There's various ways for people to give input to the TSP. And the contractor is always going through those, responding to those. They've done things like made changes when you call the thrift line so that they're, again, responding to comments. It's an iterative process, and that's that's what we're going to continue to go through. So you mentioned that there was the, you can see your account balance a lot more clearly now. There's also the navigation or the sidebar menu that you mentioned as well. But I know that another change that you made to my account and the TSP platform is these kind of recommended pages or links. So can you tell me a little bit about the, the thought process behind what went into making those more visible? Well, they were there before. It's just that 
there were, in my opinion, so many tiles that it was sort of distracting. The new layout makes it easier to focus on different portions of the page and different pieces of information. I think it's a clearer layout and easier to focus on. And other than the changes that you've made so far and adjusted in my account, are there other things that maybe you've been hearing from participants where you still have things in the works, other updates or changes or tweaks to the website that you're looking uh, to make in the future? There are several, and unfortunately, I don't have a time frame for when they'll be implemented, but we are looking to allow people to make changes to the amount of their monthly payment online so they can log into their my account and make the change from you know, $400 to $500 for their monthly payment. That will be a great convenience to participants and something that we're hearing from participants about. Uh, The other thing that we're going to be implementing again at some point is to allow participants to opt out of paper delivery on more items. Right now, you can opt out of paper delivery on certain things, but there are other things that we're mailing you whether you want it or not. And we're going to expand participants' ability to say, really, please don't mail it to me. And then conversely, people like me who like paper, we're going to allow people to opt in and have their quarterly statements mailed to them. Right now, they just show up in your My Account as an attachment to us in your secure mailbox, but I print them out. I am very fond of paper because by golly, then I know what's there. So one question I am kind of curious about, you know, when you first had this rollout last summer, was the initial plan in the website to, um, you know, have have that be kind of a static thing or was the or was the plan always to listen to what participants were saying and then make changes based on that? It was always to listen to what participants were saying. That's why there's the surveys on all of the different channels. That's why we're offering new channels. We've got Ava, you know, the the bot that answers questions. We have the live chat, which is a totally new feature that you can actually, using air quotes, talk to somebody via computer during business hours. And so we're surveying and capturing information about all of those. And of course, you can also, I'm sure you do the same thing at your website, is you you look at the metrics, right? Where are people going? If they're bouncing back and forth, does that show that the information isn't clear? We do that and monitor those kinds of metrics as well. We're almost exactly one year out from the initial launch of the new My Account platform, the uh, rollover or transition to the new record keeper. Do you have any reflections on the way that that process went or lessons learned now that we're a year out from when we had that initial launch? We just didn't plan for the number of phone calls that we got. We estimated that the call center would get twice our highest call volume ever. And we got six times the highest call volume ever, right? So I'm not sure that anyone could have guessed that, but what it did was it sort of created a wave effect because you couldn't get through, so you'd call back and you couldn't get through, which would just make the call volume that much higher and increase participant frustration to say the very least. 
I'm not sure that that's a lesson learned because, again, I'm not sure that anyone would have estimated that. But it was certainly something that we learned that we needed to make sure that our call center reps were fully trained so that they could answer questions. Because, again, initially, when we started, some of the call center reps were new and they had been trained. But, you know, there's a big difference between being trained and actually having that experience we're now, as you just said, a year in. So that experience is there and we're continually refreshing training because again, during the year we have different between January and April is our busiest time because it's tax season and people are getting their year-end statements. They're getting their 1099Rs, you know, all that stuff is going on. And then as you get through the year and people start thinking more about potentially retiring, we have a different set of questions that come our way. So we always want the call centers to be ready for the most likely questions at any given time. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, you are a bit of a unique agency in that you get a lot of attention from federal employees and retirees specifically. But do you see that you know this rollout or this type of transition in TSP is something that you know, other agencies who maybe are rolling out similar types of updates could take lessons learned. Any takeaways there that you think could apply more broadly? You know, that I don't know, because in terms of the actual transition, in terms of transferring data and transferring people's account balances, the accounts balance down to the penny, right, which was sort of key because that's our our primary job the information transferred. There were people like me who, you know, roughly 250,000 people whose TSP3 information wasn't showing up in the system. We still had it, but it wasn't showing up in the system. But those were conscious choices because the data quality wasn't so good. From a technical point of view, it went well. And that was the result of 18 months of planning and testing and testing and planning and planning and testing. There were certainly things that came up that, you know, there were glitches. And I don't know that anyone who's ever transitioned an IT system hasn't found a glitch after, you know, even with your home computer, you, you know, you try and connect over to print something or do whatever, and you can't find the same network and da, 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 da. So not that I'm comparing our record keeping to my, home laptop. But there is, in my experience, never a smooth IT transition. Something that was also brought up at the most recent monthly board meeting was that you recently combined an office into the Office of Participant Experience. Talk a little bit more about the decision that went into that and their role with participants moving forward. The decision was precipitated by one of our office directors deciding to retire. He was the director of the Office of Participant Services, and Jim Courtney is the director of our Office of Communications and Education. And so those are our two participant-facing entities. They're the ones who touch the participants directly. When the previous director left the agency, We just thought it made sense to combine them into an office of participant experience. And then everyone who is participant facing is in the same office. What are you hoping TSP participants see or experience when they 
log into my account and how are you kind of working toward that goal for what you're hoping participants experience is? Across the board at the agency, we are always working with the participant in mind. We are always trying to make sure that the participant receives excellent service in an efficient and effective manner. And so that, again, getting back to the surveys, we're doing, we, the agency, are doing our separate participant satisfaction survey because we want to have an independent view of what participants think. Again, we we built into the contract and we have our own mechanisms for surveying customers or participants and wanting them to give us feedback because that's why we exist. Kim Weaver, Director of External Affairs at the Federal Thrift Retirement Investment Board, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. We'll take a short break, and when we return, some recent developments on telework and Defense Department pay scales. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. At the Veterans Affairs Department, the word is out, headquarters employees will have to spend at least half of the days in a pay period, five of ten days, that is, in the office. I got the details from Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Jory, this is all kind of money they never had in the first place because it hasn't been appropriated yet, so there's a cut to an anticipated increase. That $20 billion trimmed off. Where does the agreement say that money will actually end up? So that money is going elsewhere within the federal government. White House officials told reporters that this money would be repurposed. Ten billion of it in fiscal 2024 would be repurposed uh, elsewhere within the appropriations process for that fiscal year. And then in fiscal 2025, another 10 billion would be repurposed for non-defense priorities elsewhere within government. This really doesn't have a material impact on the IRS in terms of its spending of that remaining $60 billion. These are multi-year no-year funds for the IRS. And so this doesn't mean that in FY 2024 or 2025, they don't have access to any of those funds. It's all drawing from this big pool in the end. Sure. So for their modernization plans, they already have, as you pointed out, issued their plans and how they wanted to use the money. So they haven't gotten to the end of the money yet, let's say. So they still have the beginning of the money. So is there any effect of this on their short-term plans? The White House doesn't expect that in the short term, the IRS will need to change its plans at all, really. Uh, What they said is that there was probably a chance the IRS would need to come back anyway to any future administration down the line at the end of that decade and possibly come up with more money to finish whatever projects were in the works past that $80 billion. And so now that So now that we're in a different reality, uh, they're going to use what they can for the $60 billion that includes significant hiring. The IRS said that it's going to, in the upcoming years through the end of fiscal 2024, hire 20,000 new employees. That focus on that hiring is going to be in terms of taxpayer experience personnel as well as enforcement. As far as those, you know, longer term visions for what the IRS can do with this money, you know, we're also looking at a modernization of the individual master file and the IRS moving on to its own direct e-file system that would compete with the turbo taxes of the world. 
I think they should get a contractor to fix the master file for free and then get 10 years of no taxes or something might be more effective than the billions they've already spent on that crazy database. Anyway, now this bill, this which again is not law yet as we speak, we've got a few more days to go to see if it is law, but that does put caps on spending levels for the rest of the government, correct? It feels a little bit like sequestration. It does. What this deal, which is not yet law yet, what it would entail is a freeze of non-defense discretionary funding for fiscal 2024. White House officials say that would basically feel like a continuing resolution for most agencies there. And for fiscal 2025, it would cap growth of non-defense discretionary spending to 1%. Now, Veterans Affairs got special treatment, as it often does under budget impasses. Somehow veterans, nobody seems to argue so much about they should have What about Veterans Affairs Department spending under the deal? Right. Yeah. Well, under the earlier deal, the VA did stand to lose uh, quite a bit of uh, jobs and personnel uh, under a deal that would have capped spending at FY 2022 levels. uh, But that is not the deal that we're talking about here. The deal would fully fund the VA's toxic exposure fund at levels proposed by the Biden administration for the next two years. That would be $20 billion in FY 2024 and $21.5 billion in 2025. All right. And uh, I know that you spent the Memorial Day weekend, like so many people in Washington, Maybe you got a cookout in, but you still had to read that 99-page bill, which, you know, pretty small by some of the standards Congress has had for its bills in recent years. What else did you find in there? Yeah, 99 pages is quaint by some of these bill standards. What also is part of this deal is a rescission of most of the remaining COVID-19 emergency funds that are out there. That's to the tune of about $30 billion. That's not all of the money that's out there. There's about $5 billion that's going to remain intact for agencies to research next-generation COVID-19 vaccines. Some of that money is within the VA itself. They plan to keep that just, they budgeted that as part of their current FY 2023 operations. That's about $2 billion. All right. And so default then would be avoided when this becomes law, presumably, and the Senate will vote on it as far as we can tell by the end of the week. Presumably, and they would have to vote on it by the end of the week to avert this uh, unprecedented government default. What the Treasury Department says is that they would need that deal to materialize by June 5th. That is the latest date of them figuring out how much revenue is still on hand to pay debts as they're scheduled. They've gone back on that date a couple times, but they have checked the couch cushions, found a couple billion here and there. And so June 5th is the final date that they would be able to keep paying the government's debts. And Jory, before we let you go, I wanted to return to the IRS that we talked about at the top here. And Danny Werfel, the commissioner of several months now, I guess, also, besides having a spending plan for modernization, had a workforce plan that spanned 10 years. And does that look like that'll stay intact, do you think, under this deal? Well, there's a very good chance that they will need to go back and modify that. Commissioner Werfel said that beyond the FY 2024 hiring plans, they were going to come up in a matter of weeks, a plan that would look at the IRS's hiring needs across the decade. Now, given that they are about to lose about a quarter of this proposed funding for modernization, uh, it would be hard to believe that that would be the same vision for the workforce without those funds. All right. So all depends on what happens through the week and through the weekend, and we'll just find out. 
Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And from our own Jared Serbu, I got details of a Defense Department proposal to greatly expand a special pay rate for cybersecurity and IT people. Well, what has changed if everyone, apparently there's more people they feel they need to get into the system? Are they running short of people? What's their what's their play here? Yeah, that's right. This actually goes back several years now, Tom, to when Congress first created what's called the Cyber Accepted Service, which was in the 2016 National Defense Authorization Act. So going quite a ways back, it took DOD quite a while to actually use all of the authority that Congress gave it to move folks into the special pay and personnel system for cyber employees. DOD's interpretation of the law that Congress wrote back then is that it only allows them to move about 15,000 people into this special pay system. They are now this summer planning to send Congress a legislative proposal that would expand that potentially up to about 75,000 employees. So a lot of extra folks potentially into that system where they almost certainly would get more pay than they're getting right now from the general schedule. And do they have a pretty good idea of the total cost of this? Because I just ask, because topically what's going on now is there's a pay raise coming across the board for DOD. And now, thanks to the debt deal, it looks like there's going to be some caps on spending, even for DOD, although it's up a little bit. Yeah, there's there's no real way to estimate the total cost. Because, first of all, we don't know that they would go all the way up to that 75000 estimate. And frankly, that's one of the things DOD likes about this cyber-accepted service approach. You can pick and choose individual positions that you want to convert from the standard uh, Title V system into the cyber-accepted service, rather than just moving an entire military service or moving the entire Defense Department which obviously would be a very costly endeavor. And that's a contrast to the special salary rate that the Office of Personnel Management rolled out earlier this year, or at least started to propose is probably a better way to put it, for all 2210s, as they call them, all IT employees across the federal government, that that you know departments at the department level or agency level could fully opt their workforce into or out of. That's obviously very expensive, and it's one of the reasons why it's looking increasingly unlikely that it'll actually happen in any agency this year. DOD, for example, estimates that going to that special salary rate for everyone would cost about $740 million per year. That's obviously not in the budget because that proposal from OPM came out after the budget submission was out. So Patrick Johnson, the director of the DOD CIO's Workforce Innovation Directorate, talks here about why um, the, the de- uh, department doesn't pr- prefer that approach. So you can imagine the department's not in favor of taking that approach that wide, wide swath to, you know, get after everybody like that. So we favor a more targeted approach where we look at the areas within 2210s because 2210s, I've got 52 different work roles coded against 2210s when I look. So I've got about 40, 47,000 2210s of that 37,000 authorizations. You're looking at about 11,000 vacancies. So how do I move the move the dial? I would rather focus on the top 20 uh, work roles where I have high, high attrition rates of over 50%. How do I get that down? And then manage it, manage it that way. I mean, think about that, Tom. 50% vacancies in some of those work roles. And, and one of the other good things DOD has done to get after this problem is coming up with much more discrete definitions of what those work roles are rather than just having a giant pool of all 2210s. They have literally dozens and dozens of defined work roles that are based on what people actually do and not based on their job title. That was a result of the cyber workforce strategy that DOD uh, rolled out earlier this year. 
Plus, there's some expansion going on. Artificial intelligence is coming on real big, and there's the idea of a little bit more aggressive cyber outreach, let's call it, versus purely defensive monitoring of the networks. So the field itself is changing, and that seems to give them some impetus to go ahead with this. Yeah, that's right. And those AI and data and software-related work, uh, you know, those are some of those 72 work roles that DOD has already come up with, and I think they're most likely going to be adding more. And another reason I think they see this cyber-accepted service approach as preferable is it also gives them a way to tailor the pay to not just individual positions, but individual geographic areas. They, they do that with what's called a targeted local market supplement that's designed in, in some ways a lot like locality pay. It's designed to make the positions that you have in a given geographic area competitive with what labor costs actually are for comparable private sector positions in that area. You know, the government pay scale, even in that system, is probably never going to match up with what private uh, private sector employers are paying, but it at least gets them a lot closer. Right, because they do have installations in Southern California, as well as in distant places in the upper Midwest that are cold all the time. Those places simply command different salaries, but on the other hand, they might need to to attract people, say, from a nice area that's really attracted to the mission. But if you're going to move to Minot, North Dakota, then you probably need to pay people to go there. I think that's right. And I think DOD is increasingly moving to, you know, having its cyber workforces in large concentration centers. I mean, you, you think about, you know, the Army's new cyber, cyber command in Georgia consolidated a lot of its workforce in one place there and you see similar things in other services and and and, you know that that's that's another reason why having these targeted local market supplements probably makes sense because you can do a lot more tailoring and thinking about what it is what does it actually cost to attract and retain people in a particular area i guess maybe the downside is not so much a downside but the potential danger is getting into a situation where pay patterns developed that could be seen as discriminatory if you look at the workforce as a whole. Yeah, I think that's a legitimate concern. And another thing to watch as this all plays out is the extent to which remote work is still allowed for a a lot of this workforce. You know, obviously, everybody went remote during COVID. Different organizations are having (laughs) different uh, responses now that we're able to get back into the office. And so if you have a large proportion of the workforce that's still remote, how exactly do you adjust their targeted local market supplements? Which geographic area do you assign them to? I don't think we completely know the answers to questions like that yet. All right. So just to summarize, then, they've got 15,000 positions authorized under the Special Accepted Service, Cyber, and now they're looking to 75,000, but that's the ceiling, and likely they won't go that number, but somewhere between 15,000 and 75,000. Yeah, 75,000 I would describe as probably more like an estimated ceiling. And I should emphasize that really depends on Congress authorizing this additional authority, this expansion of the Cyber Accepted Service and the upcoming NDAA. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Well, that's it for this week's FedLife. Find all of our coverage of developments affecting your life as a federal employee at federalnewsnetwork.com. I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.